Welcome back to Labor Law Radio. I'm your host, Michael Tracy. Picking up the second uh, half of the hour, we're going to talk about uh, computer programmers and the exemptions that apply to them. Before I do that, I want to get into a couple news items that uh, come up. Uh, some of them relate to labor and employment uh, somewhat in an ancillary way. Then we will get into the uh, discussion on computer and the uh, IT field and uh, maybe pick up some of the news items we don't uh, finish at the uh, bottom of the hour. So the first one is an interesting piece of legislation. This actually is being proposed in New Jersey. There was a similar law that was proposed in California a couple years ago. It didn't really go anywhere. I don't think this one's going to go anywhere in New Jersey either. But this would this a law would allow employees to sue for any type of abusive work environment. Now, the big problem in the employment law field is that the vast majority of people that call me up, at least, think that this type of law is already in place. They feel that any type of abusive work environment or hostile work environment or adverse work environment gives you a cause for legal action. Currently, the state of the law is that it does not. This particular piece of legislation would be interesting because it would dramatically change employment law in New Jersey. And if there's a similar version of the law passed here in California, it would dramatically change employment law here in California. As it is, your job can be terrible. It can be the worst job on the planet. Your boss can yell at you every day. He can abuse you. He can call you bad names. He can do all sorts, or she can do all of these uh, bad things to you unless it's based on one of the protected uh, characteristics such as age, race, gender, sexual orientation, certain types of medical conditions, things like that. But if you're not being harassed or abused or treated poorly because of one of those characteristics, then currently you are out of luck. So there is a proposal, as I said, in New Jersey to change this. It's not too likely that it would pass um, the uh, person who is uh, sponsoring it, I guess, uh, Assemblywoman Linda Greenstein is a Democrat and basically said that uh, she wants to make a law so that people don't have to put up with abusive work environments. Uh, the argument that she puts forth is that people really don't have an option. You know, the theory is you can quit your job. If your job is so bad, um, you can always quit. But uh, the reality is that uh, for some people, that quitting a job would be a severe economic hardship on them, and they have little choice but to uh, uh, to keep their job and put up with the abuse. In this economic environment, I don't know what it's like in New Jersey, but California has a very strong economy. The labor market is uh, doing pretty well. So if you did uh, quit your job, finding another job is not the most difficult thing on the planet. So in the meantime, if you are in California, this law is not in effect. And if your boss is abusive to you, and it's not based on your age, race, gender, national origin, certain medical conditions, or some of the other protected characteristics that are out there, then you don't have any legal recourse. But there is a interesting website run by one of the unions, I think the AFL-CIO. I'll put a link up on the uh, Labor Law Radio website, but it's uh, My Bad Boss Contest, and uh, what it is is a, is a competition where you post all the stories from uh, yourself and your coworkers about the various uh, terrible things that have happened to you on the job. And 
then you can rate other people's stories and eventually they come up with a winner for who has the the worst worst boss out there hopefully none of my workers put me up there i'll have to uh, do a search but that brings me to the next point you should know that if you are using the internet while you are at work everything you can and do uh, type or surf or do whatever you do on the internet can be monitored and tracked by your employer so if you are going to go rate your boss on the my bad boss website probably do it from home don't uh, use your company's internet in order to uh, to log in there i can't tell you the number of cases that i've dealt with where you know either it's unpaid overtime sexual harassment in pretty much any case one thing that is commonly produced these days is a usage log for the employee's internet usage Basically, every website that you ever visited while you were working for this employer is tracked, displayed on a piece of paper. It shows how long you spent on that website, what other websites you uh, clicked on and visited and everything like that. And they use it to say, well, this person wasn't doing any overtime. He was doing his online banking. He was buying music or something like that. And while he was physically on the employer's premises... Uh, he was not engaged in company business. He was just doing personal errands and things like that. And that would not be considered hours worked. That would be considered a uh, break time. So or sexual harassment, same thing as well. If you're off visiting uh, various uh, pornographic sites, then uh, that is uh, a problem for raising uh, sexual harassment claims. Also, as we had talked about in wrongful termination claims, the after-acquired evidence uh, theory could give problems if you're out there abusing uh, the company internet or you know downloading uh, stuff that you're not supposed to. So in any case, the My Bad Boss uh, website, I will put a link of it up on Labor Law Radio website and uh, go rate your boss if he is terrible, but do not go hire an attorney unless it is based on one of those uh, protected characteristics. So interesting piece of legislation. Don't think it'll go anywhere, but uh, if it does, I'll be the first to tell you about it. Okay, the next news item sort of I had to do a double take on it because when I first read it, I was a bit, uh, it read the headline, I was a bit uh, disturbed by it. And I'll read the headline that I read to you and you'll see why. But when you read the details of the story, I was even more disturbed by it, but for a completely different reason. So the headline that grabbed my attention was Cleaners File Suit Over Pay for Jobs Near Ground Zero. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm an employee advocate in the uh, plaintiff's labor law, and you're always fighting to get people their wages, get people their benefits, get people their, their rights protected. And when you see things like what looks like on its face, somebody saying, well, we worked a bunch of overtime on 9-11 cleaning up, or, you know, in this case, it was shortly after 9-11 cleaning up the, uh, the wreckage, and we want a bunch of overtime kind of grates you the wrong way. Obviously, you're still entitled to overtime protections and everything, but, um, you know, asserting your rights in every single situation maybe isn't the, the most appropriate thing to do. So I was a little disturbed by the title, but as you read on in the story, you see what happens and you see why this is a great case and why I like this case. And the reason is that these employees who are suing, yes, they did work overtime, and it's essentially an unpaid overtime, an unpaid wage claim for work that they did post 9-11 in the cleanup. However, what happened here is the employer was billing them out by the hour. So every hour that they worked, the employer 
either paid, you know, billed the state government or the federal government or whoever it was that was ultimately paying for this stuff, the, the building managers, paid by the hour for each one of these people that worked. The employees received a flat daily rate. So the employees were willing, of course, to lend a helping hand to you know, try to help clean the thing up, try to get uh, America back on its feet. And the employer was making a ton of money off of them. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Employers make money off employees. That's the way uh, the system works. But in this particular case, the employer was illegally making money off the employees. And that's not the way the system is supposed to work. So in this case, basically, they weren't paying any overtime, but they were still billing for it. And we see that a lot, and I sort of use this as a segue into my computer programmer case because I see that a lot inside the technology field, that either the uh, recruiting agency or one of the other, uh, you know, the employer itself, consulting company, something like that, is actually billing the person out for every single hour that they work and then paying them a salary. Now, first of all, I want to say there's nothing wrong with that in some cases. For instance, in a law firm, the law firm may bill all their attorneys out at an hourly rate and pay the attorney by a salary. And they may coerce the attorney to work long and hard hours so that the company can make more profit. There is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing illegal with that. There's nothing immoral about it. It's the American way. That's the way a successful law firm is going to run. Bill your associates out at a high rate of pay, make them work a bunch of hours, and pay them on a fixed salary. That's the way it works. But for other fields, that is not the way it works. Now, attorneys are exempt from overtime, generally under the professional exemption, largely because they're considered to be able to bargain for themselves. If an attorney is being abused, presumably she's going to stand up for herself and say, hey, I don't want to work this many hours, or hey, I want a raise or a bonus or something like that. A janitor cleaning up at uh, ground zero is not going to have that flexibility, and that's why the overtime laws are there to protect them. Now, the same thing goes for computer programmers. Now, I know the computer programmers out there are saying, but hey, wait a second, we're sophisticated, we can negotiate for ourselves, we have these, uh, uh, you know, these great negotiation skills and we don't need the government protecting us. Well, I worked in the technology field for years prior to becoming an attorney, worked as a computer programmer, um, doing database stuff, things like that. And uh, my experience is that computer programmers are not good contract negotiators. They frequently do not represent their best economic interest. You can see that by the large amount of money that technology recruiters make off of computer programmers. A lot of programmers don't realize that when they go through a technology recruiter, a headhunter, they think the headhunter's out there to do them a great job and, and find them work. They don't realize that the headhunter is receiving 33% of their first year's salary as a, a placement fee, and that's fairly standard. Some of them are more, some of them are less. But uh, when I was in the industry, Frequently, let's say you have a $90,000 a year computer programmer, which is kind of run-of-the-mill, uh, not fresh out of college, but not you know, the most senior guy on the planet either, gets a $90,000 a year job. He doesn't realize that the company has to pay $30,000 in order to bring him on to that position. So computer programmers frequently think they're the smartest person on the planet, and they think they're the best negotiators, but they're really not. 
and I see this a lot with unpaid overtime, that there's this belief that being on a salary somehow makes you a better person. Somehow it makes you a more professional person. Um, you know, the exemption is called the professional exemption, but it has nothing to do with whether you're a professional or you're a good person or anything like that. It simply means certain recognized professions. So every attorney who's paid on a salary is going to be exempt. It doesn't mean the attorney is professional. doesn't mean she's a good attorney. doesn't mean she's even a, an okay attorney. Could be completely incompetent. Malpractice the entire case doesn't mean they're entitled to overtime. That's the, uh, the exemption. Same thing with uh, computer programmers. Just because you're paid on a salary doesn't mean you're somehow higher or better than anybody else. In fact, when you look at it, a lot of very senior programmers work on an hourly basis as consultants. In fact, a large number of you know, the higher echelon in computers, information technology, databases, all are consultants, and they all work on an hourly basis at rates that are significantly higher than your $90,000 a year salary or $100,000 a year salary. So it's interesting that the people who are working these mid-range jobs feel that they are somehow elevated because they're paid less money and required to work more hours. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. But that is the, uh, the mentality that's out there in the industry. And I wish I could break it because there is a ton of unpaid overtime for information technology workers, for computer programmers. And I don't know how I can convince people. I speak to them. I you know, do radio shows like this, uh, put it up on my website. But for some reason, they don't seem to believe that they can be entitled to overtime despite the hundreds of cases that have gone on, the thousands of people who have been given overtime at Electronic Arts, at IBM, at a number of big companies, and these guys aren't employing, you know, these aren't junior programmers and, you know, uh, entry-level uh, QA testers. These are senior developers, software engineers, QA, information technology, making good amounts of money, and they have all been paid overtime for their past work. There's been a number of cases recently, we had talked about the Iker case a while back, that have determined specifically for these types of computer programmers that they are indeed entitled to overtime. A common misconception is that the computer professional exemption automatically applies to every computer professional. The vast majority of computer programmers, systems analysts, and uh, QA technicians, you know, QA testers and uh, engineers meet the requirements, the duties requirement of the computer professional exemption, but they aren't making enough money in order to uh, to qualify for it. In California, the law requires that they make a substantial amount of money. Now, the amount goes up every year, so check my website or the uh, Department of Labor website that gives the yearly update. But for 2007, your hourly rate has to work out to be $49.77. What that means is if you work a 40-hour week, you need to be paid a salary of $103,000 per year. But as you work more hours in your weeks, your salary, in order to qualify, has to be higher. So, for instance, if you work some 50-hour weeks, doesn't mean you have to work 50 hours every week. Doesn't mean your average week needs to be 50. Just the maximum week that you ever work in a year. 
let's say that's 50 hours, you have to be paid $129,000 a year, slightly more than $129,400 in order to be exempt, that is not get paid overtime. So basically, if you're a computer programmer and you're paid on a salary and it's less than $129,000 a year, then you are going to be entitled to overtime in the vast majority of cases. There are some things for senior architects, senior analysts, where you're doing process engineering and administrative functions other than writing computer code. Uh, those types of people may be exempt under the administrative exemption. But if you're writing computer software, spend most of your time, more than 50% of your time, writing code, debugging code, testing code, and you make less than $129,000 a year on a salary, then you are entitled to overtime. Even if they pay you on an hourly, let's say you're only making $45 per hour, but you're paid for every hour that you work, you're still entitled to overtime. So that's sort of the threshold that California has set for a senior level engineer. That if you want to be, you know, one of these exalted, exempt uh, computer professionals that uh, somehow is uh, better than everybody else because they're paid on a salary, then your salary better be pretty high. Uh, the vast majority of people, first of all, there is somebody who's making a salary like that usually is working a bunch of overtime and their actual hourly rate is much less than even a less skilled engineer. So I think they're doing themselves a disservice by working uh, you know, on a salary basis, but it makes them feel better. That's the way it is in the industry. I understand that. But when you think about it, it's really doing everybody a disservice because they should be paying you for each hour that you work and you should be getting an overtime premium just like every single other person in America. And it really does a disservice to the computer programming field because it allows managers to essentially get away with abusing employees. The number one reason for software overruns, in my opinion, is mismanagement of the project. And project managers routinely mismanage software projects because they know they always have this built-in overtime that they can draw on. So. When you work as a project manager, if you have a 10% overrun in your project, it's pretty bad. If you have a 25% overrun in your project, you you really have problems as a project manager. I mean, especially if you're on a fixed bid contract. I mean, I did some, some work as a project manager on fixed bid contracts. It's very important that you estimate your projects correctly and that the number of hours that you estimate are actually how many hours it takes. A lot of programmers don't have that skill. I mean, a lot of project managers don't have that skill. So what they do instead is when they're down 25% over budget, they simply have you work 25% more. So that's basically a 50-hour week. All developers go to 50-hour week, and we are going to make up the 25% deficiency, deficiency that we have. And the only reason for that is the project was either misscoped in the beginning, mismanaged, they have the wrong developers on the project, or some other problem, but usually it's not because the computer programmers didn't know how to write the code. Most of the time, it's management's problem. So management is going to make the exact same amount of profit. The company is going to come in, quote, on budget because the developers all were coerced into working 50-hour weeks for the exact same amount of money. Now, interestingly enough, in the consulting environments, in the, for instance, when I worked on the fixed bid projects and stuff like that, we would still all keep track of the number of hours that we worked. So you don't even get the benefit of working a salary. You don't get to come in late and leave early and not keep track of your hours. No, that is not what a salary means. There's a misconception out there that when you're on a salary, the employer can't make you track your time. Wrong. No. 
The employer can require that you keep track of every minute of your day and keep you on a salary, and it's not going to defeat the exemption. Now, for a computer programmer, they're not exempt in the first place, so it's irrelevant. I'll go back to the attorney analogy. I keep track of my hours. My associate keeps track of her hours. That's what we do. That's what we have to do. Doesn't mean you can come in early, leave late. Doesn't mean any of that. It actually means you work longer and you have to keep track of all your hours. Same thing for computer programmers, but they should be entitled to overtime because they don't fit any of the exemptions that are out there in most of the cases. You can visit my website to see what types of computer professionals are not entitled to overtime. The vast majority are not. In fact, anybody that's susceptible to a, any type of class action is probably entitled to overtime. So if you're with you know, in a company that has 40 or 50 programmers doing substantially similar things, chances are they're all entitled to overtime. If you're the CTO, the grand poobah of, you know, the new implementing the XP program or something like that, you're probably exempt from overtime. But you can read about that on my website. Interestingly enough, extreme programming, which on a side issue I am not a fan of, if you're a computer programmer listening to this, I can tell you all the problems with XP and why it was a horrible methodology. However, one thing that it does say in extreme programming is to never use overtime. It degrades the morale of the team. It essentially allows managers to slip up and not be held accountable for it. And ultimately, programmers, pretty much any worker, can't be productive in an intellectual capacity working 60-hour weeks every week. It gets very, very tiresome. So if you are in the, in the industry, do yourself and everybody else a favor. Visit my website. See if you're entitled to overtime. If you think you're entitled to overtime, call me up. Call another attorney up. But get that company to comply with the law because it's hurting yourself. You personally are probably losing out on a substantial amount of money. And sometimes these uh, computer programmers and IT professionals don't realize what a substantial either settlement, award, or award as part of a class action that they can get. These aren't, in most cases, small little you know, amounts of money, especially if you've been there a number of years and you're making you know, 60, 70, you know, 90,000, $100,000. That type of overtime can add up very, very quickly. So in any case, that's all the preaching I'm going to do to my uh, former coworkers in the, you know, in the computer professional field. Information technology, very, very similar to computer programmers, it's actually even more people in network engineering and information technology, server maintenance, desktop support are entitled to overtime. And in addition to California overtime, they are probably entitled to liquidated damages under federal law. I don't want to really get into too much of the distinctions now, but if you look at my website, it does talk about both of those. And if you're in either one of those fields, you should uh, definitely consider what your options are. I'm going to go back to some current events in labor and employment and a little odd items depending on how much uh, time we have here. Interesting lawsuit where the title here is Adelphia sued over professors' pay disparity. And this one is actually being done by the government. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Equal Opportunity Commission filed a class action sex discrimination lawsuit. So it's very rare to see class action sex discrimination lawsuits because, one, it has to be a fairly large organization. So you pretty much know it's going to be some type of government or large corporation um, that is going to be the defendant. But it's also difficult to prove a pattern and practice across an entire industry 
and to you know group all the people to be uh, similarly situated. So you do see some out there. There's been uh, some successful ones against Walmart and other corporations. And this one is fairly interesting because it's essentially alleging that this uh, university, uh, Adelphi, had for a number of years discriminated, you know, against women professors. And the evidence seems to be fairly straightforward that men are paid higher than women at this particular university. And I got to wondering exactly how this could occur. Now, I this one is not a California lawsuit. It's uh, filed in federal court. And... Uh, it's a little bit uh, different from California law, and I think a reason for that is a particular California statute, which is California, which is California Labor Code sections two thirty two and two thirty two point five. Now I know I don't like quoting statutes here on the uh, the radio because uh, it I don't know sounds too attorney like. But in any case, uh, and people aren't going to remember them anyway. But these particular statutes say that an employer cannot discharge, formally discipline, or otherwise discriminate against an employee who discloses the amount of his or her wages. And that is a very, very important statute. The corollary one is that you're also allowed to discuss your working conditions with other people. They cannot require that you uh, keep your working conditions secret. And that is important because, especially in a case like this uh, sexual discrimination case, where had the employees simply talked with each other, they would have quickly realized that they were being underpaid. Uh, you know, some places, you know, the federal government, you know, the wage scale is published, so it's fairly easy to figure out how much people uh, are paid. But in a, the vast majority of private companies, they don't disclose how much everybody makes. However, in California, you have an absolute right to discuss that with your other employees. You have an absolute right to discuss it with people outside the company and make sure that you are indeed being paid a fair wage. Because in this case, had they simply had a, a little bit of candid discussion among the uh, female uh, professors, as well as a couple of the male professors, they quickly would have realized that there was a wage discrepancy and probably could have raised it with the university and fixed the problem years in advance and not require the federal government to, uh, to come in and clean it up. So a lot of companies, I've seen company policies that say in their employee book, you are not allowed to disclose your wage. You are not allowed to discuss this with other people. I've seen it in offer letters that say this offer of payment is confidential and stuff like that. Well, you can go to California Labor Code and specifically it says no employer may do any of the following. Requires a condition of employment that an employee refrain from disclosing the amount of his or her wages. So it's right there. It's pretty clear cut in terms of what is allowed. And if you think you're in a situation where that might not be happening, just make sure that you know that you have a right to discuss that with your uh, coworkers and see what's up rather than waiting for 10 years in the federal government or the, you know, the state government to investigate it for you. So as always, it's important that the number one person looking out for you is always needs to be you. And if you think you have something, then, you know, go uh, report it to the government, go get an attorney. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. So I will see you uh, next week. Thanks. This broadcast has been a commercial advertisement of the law of Michael Tracy, not meant to be legal advice. It does not serve to establish attorney-client relationship. Any statements made during this broadcast are also swear or not guarantees of any outcome. Michael Tracy is licensed as an attorney only in California. 